Hello and welcome to the Global Health Matters podcast. In 2021, we as a Global Health Matters team set out on a pioneering adventure to produce 10 episodes on various topical issues in global health. In our first season, we spoke to 24 guests from different disciplinary backgrounds. Our guests covered the globe, from South Africa to Somalia, from the Philippines to Peru, and all the way from Uganda to the United States. In this pandemic time, we recorded remotely. This required perseverance of guests in overcoming poor internet connections due to unforeseen rainstorms, early morning and late night recordings to account for time zones, and many other challenges associated with producing a global podcast. We're very pleased that our listenership has grown over the past 10 episodes to audiences in 131 countries. And today we have a bonus episode for you. We will be hearing from two of our listeners. I'm joined by Teresa Soup from the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency and Mohamed Al-Safadi from Global Polio Eradication Program. Teresa and Mohamed will be sharing their reflections on some of season one's episodes. Teresa and Mohamed, thank you for joining me today. Really happy to be here. Hi, Gary. In season one, two of the episodes touched on the need for the research and knowledge ecosystem to transform and evolve. In episode six on research leadership, Tembekam Pakuntusi and Carly Silver spoke about the need for institutions and individuals to give visionary guidance to researchers as to issues for which new knowledge is needed. In episode 10, Catherine Chobotungi and Agnes Binaguaho both spoke to the transformation needed in the research ecosystem such that it can shed off the legacy left by colonialism. To date, this has been one of our most listened episodes. Mohamed, let's start with you. In your opinion, what from this episode resonated with you? Thank you, Gary. This episode actually is one of my favorites. Uh, the, the, the amount of courage and status quo challenge uh, by both Catherine and Agnes is, is, is truly inspiring uh, and indeed applaudable. I, I believe the conversation about the decolonizing global health uh, and addressing the power asymmetries is not something new. Uh, but as discussed by uh, by the, your guests, the recent COVID-19 vaccine uh, inequity have make it more obvious and make it more urgent as we see the global solidarity is just an, an unachievable word out there. We know that there might be uh, many things uh, that is wrong with how we do uh, global health, how we practice it, how we taught it, how we develop it. And, and we naturally tend to jump into the emergency mode because of its burning nature, of course. But sometimes we overlook the harmful byproducts uh, related to the long-term effect of some of these global health intervention. And this was, was really highlighted uh, several times by, by the speakers. Uh, it, is, it is somehow related to the lingering emergency uh, approaches that creates dependent system instead of really building national capacities mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of, uh, of health and, and health education. Uh, finally, I, I just would like to highlight that in that specific context, uh, some of the speakers highlighted about the issue of white supremacy. I, I personally see supremacy in that specific context uh, without certain color and, and frame it with, with a white supremacy issue could really turn a blind eye to other areas of power asymmetries out there. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And Teresa, how about you? How did you feel about that episode? I also believe that it's very important for, uh, in particular, the donor community to listen to. So now I speak as a funder of, of research, and I think it's true. We do get stuck in systems and in practice and wanting to do well, but sometimes, as you said, Mohammed, even doing harm. So where I work in SIDA at my unit, we work with funding for research and for supporting research ecosystem. And this is a discussion we're always having, uh, of course, how to do it in the best way, how to support universities to, to grow in the context uh, in the, the best of, of ways. But it's, it's extremely complex and, and it's, it's quite difficult to, difficult to get out of these uh, systematic uh, failures that are built into the systems. Um, but what we try to do at the starting point that we have is uh, always the university itself, what they want to do, the university in the partner country. Uh, but of course, there are always influences. But when it comes to competitive grants, that's a different thing. Uh, and we really do need to rethink the process. If uh, we want to address issues in low-income countries, it's people in that context that need to be actively involved in the design of the call and also to identify the, the problems. And the lead should, in the best of cases, of course, be taken by the universities in, in that region. And I, I think it's promising as well because uh, there's an increasing capacity at the granting councils in the low-income countries. So it's for donors, it's becoming easier to to, to really go through these granting mechanisms instead of, you know, having the call from a funding agency itself. What resonates to me in these two sessions, it's the importance of, of listening because we live in an unequal world. And in my position, then I come with the funds, but without these fantastic partners that we have in different countries across the world, we would never get any results. So somehow we do depend on each other, but of course, there's this power dynamic that we really need to be aware of. And that's also mentioned in, in this, these episodes that for researchers and decision makers as well in low-income countries, take the power, speak up and tell funders what needs to be done and how. And I'm fortunate because many of the partners that we work with, they tell me when I'm wrong and I really appreciate that. I, I think that should be even done even more. And when projects are run on basis of what people in the context want to do, it's usually a success and it's a sustainable kind of project. I think it's Catherine who says, uh, keep on defining the wrong problems and then we will fund the wrong solutions. So we have to stop doing that. Thanks for that reflection. In the season one, Teresa, what was your most enjoyable or favorite episode? The one that I really remember is the one on social innovation, probably because I've followed this initiative since the start. And I love the stories that have been produced on different social, social innovations. But I really enjoyed how you can use tablets and internet in very remote areas. It's the Mamas del Rio episode. And I've experienced it myself during my travels in the Amazon and you can access internet where there is no running water, no standard electricity or sanitation, no medical care, but a tablet like, or an internet, it can actually make you, you can get medical care through contacts with, uh, with uh, the healthcare uh, workers and also to gather health data as they do in this episode in the community and this is sent to the public health officials so that they can act on it. I think it's such a fantastic opportunity really. 
To remind our listeners, in episode four, we spoke to Magali Blast from the Mamas del Rio Community Worker Program in Peru and Luis Gabriel Cuervo about the potential and application of social innovation in health. Teresa, you already mentioned about what really caught your attention in the episode, but what did you find hopeful within the broader context of global health as it relates to social innovation? There's such a great potential, really. There are a lot of good examples. And when they're set up in the right way, uh, collecting the, the correct data to scale, then it provides an opportunity for a lot of people. And uh, this example with Mamas del Rio, I think this is one way of reaching all or leaving no one behind. When you study these initiatives, we understand how this can be done in reality. It's based on what people do on the ground and what they think and can, can work with and what they have tried. And it's an inclusive process and therefore I think it can also be sustainable. Still today, I think when it comes to innovation, there's so much focus on commercial innovations, often coupled to products. And that's also important, of course, but it's about the social impact, isn't it? So just like with the vaccines, of course, there has to be a vaccine. But what actually makes the social impact is the vaccination in itself. That's where you get some impact. And I, there are so many steps to get there, in like production and procurement and cold chains and everything. But also this interaction between those to be vaccinated and healthcare workers, trust and so on. So, so that's where I think social innovation plays a very important role. So that episode really um, helped you to put that into that uh, broader perspective. Thanks for that, Teresa. Mohammed, you mentioned that you were particularly interested and drawn to the one episode we had on communicating science and, and not fiction, and a topic that uh, really touched many lives during the pandemic. And I just wanted to see um, what really got your attention in that episode. When, when one of the speakers uh, said that science takes time. So this kind of visualization that science is a journey is, is, is really very, very uh, very good um, description. And it really uh, helped me to hear other scientists uh, sharing a common understanding that it is okay to actually live in an ambiguous uh, scientific um, position. I also find the conversation about the power of storytelling in global health is very powerful. And using the universal language through filmmaking to, to make sure uh, that we have a route for positive change was really an eye-opener to me. I, I can certainly relate to some of my personal experiences working with polio, where the impact of the right video or audio really can, can be much stronger than hundreds of reports out there. I, I really could not agree more with the idea that discussing science in, a, in an unspecialist environment is not as straightforward as many people expect. And you feel like uh, when you work, when you when you do it, when you when you touch it as a scientist, you feel it's easy. You can just communicate saying we did one, two, three, and the results was there. But it's not really uh, easy to communicate. And one of the speakers even described it, it should be as a as a as a whole career science communication, which I I, I tend to agree. However, at the same time, I, I I'm I'm not really personally a big fan of the trendy categorization of lay public versus knowledgeable scientists. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's a false labeling, but I, I, I feel it's a risky and exclusionary one. Uh, I, I personally don't like to the extent to which society often seems to think of scientists as, as a breed apart, as somehow different from other people. Even some scientists are, are lay with respect to some disciplines. For example, a, a PhD in ecology 
does not necessarily mean you are a scientist uh, with respect to quantum field theory. And once people really understand that, the, the lay public or the public or the general audience, they, are, they will be more open to engaging with science and what scientists uh, would like to, to offer. Finally, I also really like the idea about encouraging people to consume peer-reviewed articles. This is very good. We know that the process of peer review is, is really what led us to reach a vaccine uh, that is working and a more uh, scientific products out there that the humanity is benefiting from. Still, at the same time, we need to recognize the limitation of, of such mediums. Such uh, articles and journals might not be stimulating enough uh, and does not really um, might be enough for some of the people that consume scientific information in social media. So as we are calling for intensifying our efforts to really uh, communicate through scientific journals, we need to ensure we have appropriate communication strategies for different sources for information in our societies. I think it's really interesting to hear what you're saying, Mohammed, and, and I also agree. It's not an art, but science communication is a profession in itself, right. and it's, uh, it's really something that you need to learn. And that's very important. And in fact, that was mentioned during the episode by one of the guests from from Brazil. Teresa, uh, in preparing for this discussion, you mentioned that episode five on climate change and its impact on the emergence of diseases, especially among Maasai communities in Tanzania, you found it quite interesting. Those of us living in urban environments are often unaware of the intricate relationship with the environment and its effects on our health and daily lives. Teresa, did you feel personally challenged and maybe even compelled to action by the discussion from this episode? This uh, relationship between the environment and ourselves, it's really difficult to understand for us who live in urban areas. And uh, I find also that there is a really big difference between knowing something and really understanding it. I think that we need to, to, to live something to really, really understand. And we can't live everything, of course. So then we need to listen to those who do and then work uh, together, closely together, I think. And uh, what's a bit challenging to me is that we do this far too little. We don't really listen to all those who have experiences from living in, in these uh, different con uh, contexts. Today, I mean, we know that biodiversity is drastically decreasing, the environment is being polluted and de degraded, and climate change leads to a number of challenging situations, including the droughts, as they mentioned in, in this episode. So I think it's challenging. I mean, we, we've known this for such a long time, but we haven't really listened, I think. It seems we haven't understood it. Decision makers, have they listened? I mean, hardly, hardly even today, right? So... Yeah, this is what's provoking me a little bit. We know so much and so much can be done and we don't do it. And it's important for our health. I mean, both for us living in cities and for people living in rural areas in all the countries of the globe. I mean, it's really obvious these days, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But also I think it's inspiring uh, this session and, and how they work. And they refer to the Maasai as partners, not as study participants. I think this is important, stands out to me. And how they together engage in this co-creation of solutions. I, I really like that part. That's great to hear. Thanks for those reflections on that episode, Teresa. Mohammed, uh, you work in the program that uh, set to er eradicate polio and uh, you work in outbreak-affected countries like in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, 
And I have no doubt that the program is no stranger to overcoming the implementation challenges. In episode eight, we discussed the role of implementation research with a guest from Ghana, Margaret Japong, and also Lee Hampton from Gavi. Both of our guests uh, really shared the experiences and benefits of creating learning systems where the decisions are based on evidence gathered from community and from implementation of the program. How did you find the episode in terms of relevance to your work? And, and do you have any reflections on that episode? Both Margaret's words emphasizing the importance of learning to listen to what the field is telling you and Lee's stress on avoiding generalization uh, as a trap for, for really understanding the real public health issues in the field resonates very well uh, with my experience in polio eradication. M most of the Im uh, implementation risks and challenges we face in the program, starting from poor quality campaigns in some areas to vaccine refusals, have been successfully mitigated by pre-implementation research, needs assessment, and the appropriate community engagement at the field level. I'm, I'm just trying to remember that, that the vaccination microplan that were developed in the lanes of the resort in 2018, those are really what made us close that, that outbreak in a short period of time. It is the evidence-based uh, data uh, that drive us to, to break the gender-related barriers uh, to immunization in Pakistan. Those are the key uh, things to, uh, to, to succeeding in, in whatever public health uh, missions that we have in place. Thanks, Mohammed, for that uh, reflection on that episode. There are many people working for greater gender equity in global health. One of our first episodes focused on challenges faced by women and the efforts to give them more opportunities in science. Teresa, you come from a country which is considered one of the most gender equal in the world, but you work with many low and middle income countries. From what Rupa Dat and Rose Leke shared in this episode, it is a delicate balance to remain culturally and contextually respectful, at the same time strive for achieving equity for all. As a member of global health community, how do you feel this can be achieved? That's a really interesting and important question, and I wish I had the answers. <laughs> I think that the episode was really good. It's important to bring up this issue. Uh, we need to think about it. The speakers gave really important insights, I think, and, and also what can be done, such as the need of role models, mentorship programs, and also programs targeting female researchers in particular. And I think that's, that's uh, something we have to do. I was inspired by the mention of holistic mentoring. I haven't heard that before, but I do see the, the I mean, it's a really good thing where you share both the hard and soft skills, bringing yeah. in one's entire reality, because, I mean, we live in a context where we have maybe a family and uh, and uh, work and, and then different challenges. And women also in a country like Sweden, we, we have challenges and it's really good when we can interact with each other and share experiences, share stories, how to overcome these different social and cultural challenges. So yes, I think you summarized it, uh, Gary, in a really good way that 
it's important to never discount the gender inequities to use a gender lens, but we also have to take into account other intersectional factors that can play an important role, such as health status, education levels, sexual orientation, religion. And I mean, you have to look at it from, from many different perspectives. And this is where the culture and context comes in, comes in as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Another thing that I believe could be done more. I mean, we mostly talk about girls and women for obvious reasons, and we need to continue to do that. But to be successful, I think we need to include also boys and men in the discussion. And this is this is uh, mentioned in the session. And uh, But still, we have to be careful because there has to be a balance. We have to involve uh, men and uh, boys and women and girls uh, for the right reasons. So, in this case, I can imagine to co-create solutions and ways forward and really uh, keep thinking about the goal. So what challenges me sometimes is that it's so obvious and why doesn't it happen more easily? Why, why, why isn't it faster? It's a benefit for the entire society. We have to listen, co-create and learn step by step uh, and, and really not exporting ready solutions or anything that has worked in Sweden, that's not going to work in mm-hmm. in Rwanda for sure. I mean, we always have to listen and co-create, I think. Um, and we have to insist on these issues and we have to strengthen female researchers, I believe, as well. I'm sure our listeners will go back and listen to the episode. Mohamed, what were your reflections on, on, on this I, I guess the conversation about gender is, is something that we are learning about it uh, every single day. Uh, it is a, it's, it's a process that we find it in the smallest details in our work uh, and also in the, in the larger frameworks that the big organizations design. There's a lot to do. There is a lot to improve. And, and, and this, it, it's a learning curve. Uh, so working together, all of us, and trying to, to advocate for, the, for, uh, for, for a better uh, Uh, agenda to support gender is is something um, we need to be all uh, accountable to. Thank you both. So as we wrap up this discussion, uh, which is great because really um, gave us an opportunity to reflect on the whole season and and also reflect on the amazing guests that we had in in really impressive careers, all of them had in global health, uh, guests like Rose Leke or Paul Guakisa, whose really commitment to global health have been really spanning over decades. And, and other guests like Muna Abdi, Sunita Krishnan, and Alvin Marcelo, um, they're really at the forefront of the pandemic response in their countries from all the episodes they were part of. It was clear. So perhaps a final question to both of you. Uh, what has made global health a meaningful career for you? And maybe we can start with Teresa. Health, it's such a meaningful area to work on. It has always been. How can it not be appreciated (laughs) to work with? So, But I grew up in Europe and I didn't really realize the extent of health inequities until I traveled far away in my early 20s. And during one of my first travels, I ended up far out in the forest in the Amazon. And I, I met a little child who was actually dying from high fever. And this vulnerability was so shocking to me, and it's something I carry with me all the time. Uh, there was a health post, but no staff, no medicine, just the four walls. 
And I guess this is where this wish to work in global health began and also why I feel so strongly about this leaving no one behind. And now I work with financing of research for health. And that's, of course, very far away from actual practice, like what you're doing, Mohammed, and, and those out taking care of patients. But just finding these initiatives where, uh, where, which can have a great impact and make a difference to people and finding ways to support their work, that's really meaningful to me. And um, I feel so privileged to connect with people such as yourselves and people who make a big difference and just knowing that if we can fund the right things, it will benefit a lot of people. So that's that really makes me happy. Thank you. Um, what about you, Mohammed? I, I started to feel more optimistic day by day hearing all those speakers coming to, to your podcast and, and sharing their experiences. There is a lot of good intentions out there. And, and I have been always fascinated really by how a minor health intervention can really change the life of a whole community. Uh, I still remember during uh, my early career, I was working as a physician. I experienced deep dissatisfaction looking at the, at the dramatic health inequalities in some of the countries around the world. It's, 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 sometimes I think, how come a parent in Punjab, Pakistan today needs to deal with his paralyzed daughter because of polio? Still, till today, and we have a vaccine since more than uh, 40, 40, 50 years. While I, I, at the same time, I don't need to worry about my son Adam being attacked by the same virus. So, so uh, it's, it's fascinating to me, and, and it's, it's really energizing, motivating to keep working and making sure that we're improving the lives of people. One night I came across a, a verse in, in the Quran that provoked my curiosity about global health. The verse says, Gary, that whoever saves the life of a person, a single person, is as if he has saved the life of the whole humankind. I, I, when, I, when I read that, this is, this is more than 10 years ago, I couldn't really connect the interrelation between saving a life, a single one, and saving humankind. It was only recently that I have begun capturing the essence of global health and how an individual health is really central to global health and how global health is again fundamental to the health of one single individual. And, and this kind of concept really speaks to the health equality from the individual to the whole to the whole world. And I, I, I really find myself enriched every single day uh, dealing with what global health can offer with, with, with all its political, economic, social, and even sometimes ethical challenges. Uh, and I hope we can do better and, 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 and uh, keep this uh, meaningful career uh, going to, to save more lives. It's so encouraging to hear from our discussion today how season one's episodes challenge each of you and highlighted important areas you have to consider in your own work and also how it brought you hope and inspiration. One thing I personally take away from hearing your reflections today is the importance of lived experience our guests shared and also the value we gain when we truly listen to each other across contexts and settings. When I have been uh, asked to come to this podcast to, to speak about my experience, I, I had a mission that I needed to reflect basically on, on, on the episodes. And because I had that intention, I really learned a lot because I, I had a, a goal and an objective to really listen to what the speaker is saying and reflecting. Usually when I hear other podcasts while I'm driving, I sometimes minimal things, most of the things comes from here and, 
and, and go from the other side. But for, for my experience hitting the episodes, I, I really felt uh, it makes a difference when you come when you come to the podcast and try to hear for the for half an hour, really to focus on the people's experience and reflect the magnitude of, of learning would really uh, be unmissable. This was a good exercise to listen to, to these episodes with uh, more focus and really reflecting on it. I appreciated it. Thank you for joining me today, Teresa and Mohammed. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. And thank you, Mohammed. Thank you, Teresa. It's a pleasure meeting you. On behalf of the whole Global Health Matters team, we are very grateful to the support of all of our listeners across the globe, and we look forward to continuing our engagement with you. Before we end today, we know that there are other Global Health podcasts out there, and we wanted to give a special mention to the Eye on Yellow Fever, a podcast that highlights the global risks of yellow fever and how the Eye Strategy, a partnership between the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and UNICEF, is addressing this disease in the world's most affected countries. The entire series is available on WHO's website or your preferred podcast app. We will kick off Season 2 of the Global Health Matters in April. Until next time, I'm your host, Gary Aslanian. Global Health Matters is produced by TDR, the Special Program for Research and Training in Tropical Diseases. Gary Aslanian, Lindy Van Niekerk and Maki Kitamura are the content producers and Obadiah George is the technical producer. This podcast was also made possible with the support of Chris Coase, Elisabetta Desi, and Isa Suder-Dayao. The goal of Global Health Matters is to provide a forum for sharing perspectives on key issues affecting global health research. Send us your comments and suggestions to tdrpod at who.int and be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.